Lord, we remember the words of David when he hid in the cave from Saul uh, in Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit fates within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. O Lord, we come to you this morning, and we look to you. You are our refuge. You are our only refuge, especially and particularly in times of trouble. And we also want to remember on this day all those who have given their lives in defense of our country through the years, over the last 250 years. We enjoy the freedoms that they bought for us at a very great price, Lord, and we don't want to take that for granted. We get a day off, but they sacrificed everything. And so, Lord, I pray we would remember their great sacrifice on our behalf, something, the closest thing we'll know to the sacrifice your son made on our behalf, sacrificing everything that we could live with you forever. So, Lord, we pray this morning as we look into uh, an experience that David uh, had as a young man, uh, in First Samuel 24, that you would guide us through what are the defining events of the lies when you bring challenges and trials into our lives and how you use them to mold us and build us and that we can learn from David's life and experience uh, and see similarities as you work in our lives as well, Lord. We look to you to speak to us through your word this morning. In, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Shane Sanders. I'm one of the elders here at Fellowship Bible Church. We, Jen and I, have been attending this church for about 19 years now. We have three grown children, uh, four grandchildren, and two on the way this summer. Now, uh, ironically, Jen and I are, will be, well, not ironically, we'll be celebrating our 40th anniversary this year, and ironically, today, we were supposed to begin an Alaskan cruise, but we all know what happened there. So, <laughs> uh, this is wonderful. I'd much rather be here preaching the Word anyway. Thank you, Grant, for the opportunity. Um, this is a little different, so we'll all adapt. Um, there are experiences in our lives uh, or events in our lives that become defining events. Now, what do I mean by a defining event? This is my definition. A defining event is an experience that reveals who you are, it shapes who you become, and it changes the trajectory of your life. Now, God puts us through these kinds of experiences in order to transform us, to mold us, and make us into the kind of people He wants us to be in order that we may be fit to fulfill His purposes. You know, often, though, He will use personal crises uh, to accomplish His work, um, or as a part of a larger period of adversity, he uh, He might work in our lives like the one we're in presently. You know, from God's point of view, trials are not elective courses. Uh, They're required courses in His training program. You will go through them if you walk with God and if you follow Jesus. Which is why James 1 through uh, chapter 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy uh, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith does what? It builds character in our lives. Well, this morning we'd like to look at a major defining event in the early life of David. Uh, You know, he had a number of defining events uh, early in his life. Of course, his anointing by Samuel uh, in chapter 16, 
That was a pretty significant event. Uh, about a chapter later, his major national face-off with Goliath was also a major defining event. Um, and these are some of the more notable uh, defining events in his early life. But I'd like to look at a little bit more obscure defining event uh, in his life. It happened in a cave in the wilderness of Engedi in 1 Samuel 24. Now, Engedi is an unusual name. It means spring of the young goat. Uh, it's a wilderness that is about, uh, it's on the western shore of the Dead Sea, about 20 miles from Hebron. And, and it's an oasis there uh, with lots of caves. Um, now, before, though, we get to the story, and we're going to need to review the backstory a little bit to get some context here from, from chapters 16 to 23. Now, as we know, David had a pretty heady start to his life, did he not? Uh, it's just not every day that the former leader of the country shows up at your home and anoints you in front of your entire family. Um, in fact, there's only one other king at that point that had ever been anointed, and we're not even sure that David fully understood what was happening uh, that day. Um, after a while, though, he, he became then the personal musician to the king. King's having a little difficulty here. David may or may not fully understand what's going on, but he is summoned to be the king's personal assistant and musician. After a while, he even becomes the armor bearer of the king, which is a very significant role for him to have played. Uh, and then after that, of course, he kills Goliath on the national stage and becomes an inter, you know, a, a, a nationwide celebrity. Uh, after that, he commands troops in battle. He wins multiple victories over the Philistines. And then he gets to marry the daughter of the king. He's now the son-in-law of the king. Things just couldn't be going better, could they? He's a national superstar, and then the bottom dropped out. He is stripped of everything, becomes a fugitive. He's accused of treason. He's run out of town. Uh, the king himself is trying to kill him and, and attempts it multiple times. He becomes public enemy number one. He's hunted like a dog. He lives in fear, and he's done nothing wrong. He's innocent, and yet that's not uh, how he's treated. He's considered a criminal and an outlaw. And he's fighting off a great deal of pain and suffering and terror and anxiety. And he has nothing left in his life but God to rely on. And you know, that's probably exactly where God wanted him to be at this point. He has nothing else to rely on but God himself. You know, if I'm, if I'm David at this point, I'm saying, yeah, this anointing thing's going real well, isn't it, so far? What has happened? Where is God in all this? Why is this happening to me? Um, how, about you, how about you choose someone else? Uh, this is just not at all what I signed up for. In fact, I didn't volunteer for this. You came to me. And yet God was sovereign over all his experiences, was he not? Now, David's going to be on the lamb for a long period of time, running for his life, you know, through chapters 20 through 23. You know, first of all, he escapes to Nob, you know, where the priests are, and he grabs, picks up Goliath's sword along the way and a little food to go with him. He's desperate, and he flees to Gath. Let's consider that for a minute. Gath, why would you, David, who killed Goliath of Gath, flee to the Philistines, your primary enemy who you've defeated multiple times, with the sword of Goliath, what are you thinking? Yeah, see, stress will have, to have an unusual effect on you, won't it? Perhaps he's thinking that this is the only place Saul will not come looking for him uh, is in the land of the Philistines. But he leaves there after a while, has to feign madness when he realizes what he's done. Uh, and he goes on to Moab. You say, why would he go to Moab? Well, let's remember that Ruth, his great-grandmother, was a Moabitess. And so he flees there for a while, but God says, no, you're not staying here either. 
And from there he goes to Keilah. They almost turn him over, so he, he leaves there. Now he's going to go through a series of wildernesses, first through the wilderness of Ziph, then the wilderness of Maon, if I pronounce that correctly, and then finally to the wilderness of En Gedi. And uh, his extended personal wilderness experience probably was not unlike Israel's, you know, some years earlier, and it may have lasted as long as 10 years. That's quite a long time to be on the lamb and fleeing for your life. His only companions are a band of miscreants. You know, if you, if you look at David at this point, he's the original Robin Hood, isn't he? Um, and he's whipped. He is whipped. He's had about all he can take at this point. And we see, one of the, one of the neat things about studying the life of David is that we can uh, see what's going on in his heart and his prayers, of course, because of the Psalms that he's recording. And, and two of the Psalms that go with this chapter are uh, Psalm 57 and also Psalm 142, which I just read from or prayed with a minute ago. Um, so uh, we can see the cry of his heart and the state of his mind and the anxiety and the stress and the pain he's under. I'd like to read just a few of the verses here in, um, in Psalm 57. That is, to the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He pours out his anxiety and his fears, and yet he always comes back to praising God and exalting God in the midst of his circumstances, does he not? Well, and this now leads us then to the defining event of his future kingship, I would posit. Uh, now, we're going we're gonna to start in um, 1 Samuel 24 here, and I'm going to set the stage. So Saul's been out fighting the Philistines for a while, verse 1, chapter 24, verse 1. And he finds out that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi, and so start picking up at verse 2. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way uh, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So Saul has taken 3,000 of his most elite troops, and he is hunting David once again. And, of course, along the way, uh, he stops to go in to relieve himself in a cave. And apparently his personal assistant did not go with him at this point, stayed outside. And by chance, guess who's hiding in the back of that very cave? David and his men. Let's pick it up at verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So here it is. Here is the day, one of his men says. The Lord has delivered your enemy into your hand. 
And so there it is. There it is. The moment of truth. This is it. The moment of truth. You can end your suffering right now. You can right all the wrongs you've been experiencing all this time. And you can take your rightful place on the throne. Remember, he's the next anointed king. Wait a minute, though. Is this even a recorded prophecy that uh, one of his men just read to him there in verse 4? Hmm. Here is the day. Well, um, it's not recorded in our scriptures. It may be, it may be a legitimate uh, prophecy, but uh, we're not quite sure, are we? But we do know this. We know that it does not apply to the Lord's anointed ever. It may apply to the Lord's enemies, the enemies of Israel, but certainly not the king, not the Lord's anointed. And even when David cuts off a corner of that robe, he feels guilty about it, doesn't it? Because, you know, that, that may have been a symbol of disloyalty and rebellion against the Lord himself. You know, the kings back then wore very elaborate robes and they would have tassels and all kinds of ornaments on the bottom there. And so for him to mar a corner of that robe was probably to make it unwearable at that point. And so he feels guilty even of that. Uh, pick it up again then at verse 6. He said to all his men, or to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So look at that. King Saul got away free. The Lord forbid that I will put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He will not kill the king who's been trying to kill him for quite a long time now and end his own suffering. And he won't permit his men to do it either. And that's pretty strong language there. He had to stop them because they were about to do it because they're suffering as well, obviously. Saul rose, left unharmed. And there it is. There it is again. David has succeeded in his defining event. He will not personally end his own turmoil and suffering by taking matters into his own hands and killing the king. In the clutch, in the clutch, he will put God's honor first. He resisted the temptation to sort of help God along here. You know, God's made a number of pronouncements about what's going to happen to Saul. David may or may not be aware of them. But that's God's job. That's not David's job. He relied solely on God here in this test. And that was it. I think that was the test for him. See, he knows he's the next uh, king. He knows he is the Lord's anointed. But he understands authority and submission, which emanates straight from the throne of God. His respect for human authority is based on his respect for divine authority. David now has shown himself qualified to lead the country because he will submit to God's will over everything else, even in the face of severe adversity. Now, after this, of course, um, after, after Saul leaves the cave, David rises up, does he not, starting in verse 8, and he calls out to him. He bows down to the king. He says, my lord, the king, uh, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? I'll pick it up at verse 10. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And he says that to him. I've done nothing wrong. I don't have any bad motive here. I'm not trying to kill you. Who's telling you this? I have no, I have no foul motive here. I've honored you, and I could have taken your life. The Lord delivered you into my hands, and I let you go. 
Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Who am I? He goes on to say, I'm just a dead dog. I'm a flea. I'm nothing. Why are you chasing me? And there you see a bit of his, his personal humility, don't you? Now, he's confident that God will judge between the two of them, but he himself will not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Hmm. Let's get back down a little bit then to uh, verse 17. So when he finishes speaking then, uh, Saul cries out, David, is that you? Is that you? He lifts up his voice and he wept in verse, into verse 16. And he says to David, verse 17, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Verse 17, And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Who does that? Whenever a man finds his enemy, what does he do? He kills him, and you didn't do that. You are more righteous than I. This is King Saul confessing this to his arch-rival, David. Wow. And then, you know, if we go on down, verse 20, uh, Saul's going to confess what we all know um, and what he's been fighting against all along. Verse 20, And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Wow, so Saul is himself now prophesying what God's will will be, and that is that David will be king. He will be king, and he will prosper, and eventually God will deliver him from this near-endless nightmare being chased <laughs> through the wilderness and through, you know, on his own all these years. All this suffering, all this pain that he's gone through, it will come to an end. And David has passed the test. Um, of his future life as a godly king, he will always put, well, he will put, he will strive to always put God's honor and God's will first. Now, he's going to have to do this again two chapters later in chapter 26 because Saul changes his mind, as he was wont to do. He did it a number of times, and he begins chasing him again um, after all that. And, and this time, though, in chapter 26, uh, God puts the whole camp, Saul's whole camp, into a deep sleep, and, and David and Abishai will sneak down into the very, right up, all the way up to Saul, where he's asleep. And Abishai begs him, please let me strike him dead. One blow will knock this out. You'll be king. This will all be over. Please, please let me do it. And he has the same response, does he? Nope, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. See, David will not seize power. He has a right understanding of God's sovereignty and God's delegated power and authority. Remember, the king, and that's going to be true for spiritual leaders today, are nothing more than vice regents or vice leaders, delegated leaders. They are not, they are never independent sovereigns. God is the sovereign. God alone is the sovereign. And David understands that. He understands power and authority. And you know, few kings ever learn that lesson. Throughout time, throughout history, few kings learn that lesson. Potential heirs to the throne, they don't do this. No, they seize power, especially when this unjust circumstances demand it. And especially when the king goes mad, as here. The king has gone mad. He's, he's lost it. He needs to be removed from power. We have a good man, a young man here who needs to take his place. But he will not lift his hand. He will trust in God to make this happen. And, and if we looked at examples through history, we would see, we would see many. Let me just mention one to you, um, the story of Henry Bolingbroke. You may not have heard that name. He is the future King Henry IV of England. About 600 years ago in the neighborhood of 1400 A.D., um, 
King Henry IV came to power. Now, he has quite a lineage. He is the grandson of King Edward III, which was a very accomplished king before him, two kings before him. Um, and Edward III uh, is himself the grandson of Longshanks. You may have heard that, Edward I, you know, from Braveheart fame. Um, but Edward III was a very famous king himself. And so Henry Bolingbroke is a grandson of his. But uh, Henry's also the grandson of King Philip the fourth of France. So he's got grandfathers on both sides that are kings, one of England, one of France. He's got, he's got a pretty good uh, pedigree here. His first cousin, though, Richard II, is the reigning king of England at the time. But he is just a terrible king. Uh, functions more like a mob boss than a true king. Um, and, and then uh, Henry, who was loyal to him early on, uh, is then wrongfully treated by his own cousin. They grew up together. They were childhood playmates. Um, his lands are taken. His title's taken. He's exiled to a foreign land. And it just gets worse and worse in England at this period of time. And so finally, Henry comes back with some troops, and he is going to overthrow the king. The king is corrupt. The king is wicked. And he should be overthrown. So he overthrows him in a near bloodless coup in about 1399. You know, Richard's own people hated him so much they wouldn't even fight for him. He had to just give up without a fight, essentially, and, and to defect. But, uh, and then so Henry goes on to become king, and now we have a new line of kings, essentially. Um, but this ultimately leads to the War of the Roses some generations later after Henry IV's death and the ongoing struggle among heirs, and, and, you know, heirs uh, to the throne over who's the rightful king, who's the rightful king. Um, and this goes on, and you know, we could cite many, many stories just like this one, couldn't we? Yeah, we could. And here's the lesson. So here's the lesson. You know, in times of severe adversity, will we put God's honor and God's will first? Will we do that? Uh, will, will we embrace and endure the suffering that God permits and allows and therefore learn the lessons and develop the character He wants us to, to grow into? And then finally, will you keep trusting God until deliverance comes? You know, oftentimes we want to be used by God, don't we? And so we pray, use me, use me, Lord. And really what we might want to be praying first, or what we should be praying first, is Lord, make me useful. And it's often through very difficult times of adversity and crisis that, that are some of our, <laughs> our strongest and most uh, profitable times of character building. Are they not? And equipping. Uh, nothing goes to waste with God. God, in fact, I'll say that God does most of His best work through periods of adversity in preparing us to be the kind of men and women He wants us to be, to serve Him, to serve His purposes. And see, and if we will, if we will put God's will and His honor first, if we will embrace the, and endure the suffering for as long as it lasts, as long as God permits it to last, if we keep trusting God until deliverance comes, then we can be fit to fulfill His purposes for our life in the advancing of His kingdom on our watch. Can we not? Amen. We can. You know, I bet we could all tell stories like this, couldn't we? Um, we could tell similar stories of times through our lives when uh, life was difficult, we went through unjust circumstances, periods of suffering of all, all, all kinds. 
And yet we can see the hand of God in building and developing our character and making us into the men and women He wants us to be and or accomplishing His purposes through what appears to be disaster and misery, and it's not. Nothing goes to waste. God uses all experiences to His glory and to advance His kingdom. All of it. God is always sovereign, and we can always take comfort in that fact. No matter what's going on around, whether, whether the sun is shining or whether it's, uh, it's the worst storm you've ever seen in your life. Isn't that true? Praise God. That is so true. And I'll end with one quick story here. Um, I debated whether to tell this or not, but uh, I know we could all tell some stories and war stories of how God's done this, but I have to say for me, in my early life, one of the most significant defining events was when I was in the, uh, was in the middle of law school. I, uh, my goal was to be a Top Gun lawyer and be one of the greatest advocates of all time. That's how young and, and arrogant <laughs> and naive I was about a lot of things. And my law school was, uh, was very good at winning uh, moot court contests. In fact, as of today, they've won well over, I think, 125 national championships. And the school's about 1,000 students, and there were maybe five that got to be on these national teams. And my goal, uh, once, I, once I found out... Uh, what I wanted to chase uh, was to get on one of those teams. And so I got on one of the farm teams early on and uh, got to go to San Diego, and we won first place and best brief. Uh, this was just, uh, to us, was just a preliminary tournament, not one of the biggies. And my goal was to get on one of the big teams after that. And after that, you could write your ticket. You could become as successful as you wanted to be, and I wanted to be a, a great advocate. Uh, this is a little bit like debate, um, but you also have to write legal briefs, and so they judge both the brief and your arguments. And you know, there's a series of, of a, a tournament, so to speak, just similar to debate, where you're arguing the case in front of a panel of appellate judges. And I thought, this is it. This is what I was made to do, and I want to be the best I can possibly be at this. And so the day came uh, for the big tournaments. Or, or sorry, the big tournament teams to be announced, and I thought, well, here it is. This is when I make it up to the bigs. <laughs> this is when I get out of the farm team, and this is when I finally make it up to the major leagues and get to write my ticket. And I got cut. <laughs> Only five people were going to make that team, and I was not one of them. In fact, I was probably never even in contention, as it turns out. But my head was, uh, I, I was so full of this, and my head was so big, um, it crushed me more than anything up to that point in my life. In fact, I, my, my whole world began spinning because I thought, God, wait, 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 wait. You're that big genie in the sky. I had poor theology at the time. You're there to help me achieve the American dream. Uh, you're there to help me achieve all my dreams. I, I, I'll acknowledge you in this. Well, this can't happen. This is, this is my career's over. I mean, what's the point of even graduating at this point? I, if I can't be the very best at, what, at, at this discipline, why should I even finish? And then, really, I went back to my, uh, I worked at a, a law firm down the street, and went back to my little cubbyhole, and I sat there just, just in a daze, nothing, like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And I said, God, I've just got to know one thing. Was this your will? Was this failure your will? I spent so much time and energy building up to this, this moment, and now it's crushed, and now all my dreams are crushed going forward. And he made it very, very clear to me through Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This is absolutely my will. I have directed your path to this exact point of failure. And here's why. Up to now, you have been pursuing your own glory and your own greatness. You're so full of yourself. 
Uh, I came out of A&M, okay? I was in the Corps. We won uh, the Outstanding Unit Award. When I was a senior, I was on Corps staff. I'm halfway through law school now. Um, all, you know, up to now, you're so full of yourself, and you're chasing your own glory and your own dreams, and you think me and everything else revolve around you, but that's not life at all. I'm at the center of all of life, and you and everything else revolve around me. Seek first the kingdom of God, the glory of God. And that just changed absolutely everything. And I praise God for that failure because if I hadn't gone through that failure, I would have been a miserable success <laughs> probably someday. And yet the whole trajectory of my life changed from that very day up until now. And my goal has been to live for the glory of God, the kingdom of God ever since. And I hope that's true for you as well. So nothing goes to waste. These experiences God will use for His glory and for His kingdom, and praise God for that. Amen? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we often find ourselves in difficult situations. Sometimes they're personal crises. Sometimes they're much broader uh, periods of adversity, like, like the one we're in now. Um. And, and there are all sorts of side effects and things that happen and adverse consequences to, to us living through this. Uh, it seems to snowball at times. It seems to get worse. Um, we live with fear. We live with anxiety. We live with stress. But Lord, you take all of these experiences and you build us and you mold us and you make us to become like Jesus. And often, but for these types of experiences, we won't become like Jesus. So we thank you and praise you. And we want to be like James, to consider it all joy that the testing of our faith builds character and that you show grace to us. And, and, and no matter how bad it looks, you use all of these things to your glory. And you will, Lord. And we thank you. And we pray you'd watch over us. We thank you so much for, again... And we remember those who have sacrificed all for our country. Um, and we give thanks to you for their service and their sacrifice as well. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shane, thank you so much. i tell you what. If you want to know what a citizen soldier looks like who is living for Christ and in the confidence of the gospel... You just had an opportunity to meet him in Shane Sanders. So thank you so much for bringing that message. And once again, showing us that God does some of his greatest work in the midst of adversity. And that's what the Lord is looking to do in our lives even now. So don't just like break away from the worship service and never think again about what you just heard from God's word. Ask the Lord, how are you using these adversities in my life to shape me? as a man or a woman of God. For all of you who are new to fellowship, we want you to know that we are so glad to be able to connect with you, even if it's online. We would love to do so in person. One of the ways that we can connect with you is that you will go, if you would just go to our website, you will find where it says connect to fellowship. If you would just click that, we can just get some basic information. If you have any prayer requests or we could be of help to you, would you just be sure to do that? Uh, we're just so grateful for the opportunity of connecting with new people, even as we go through the pandemic and these online experiences. Well, summer is just around the corner. Next week, we have our graduation uh, celebration with, uh, for our high school graduates. 
But with the coming of summer, we want you to know that starting Wednesday, June 10th, we're going to start our summer ministries. And so what's happening for junior high and high school students? They're going to be continuing their summer iron nights. They're going to be looking at fighting sin. This will be from every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 p.m. And you can uh, talk or connect with Nathan Blattman, our student ministry director, uh, to get more information. This is for all incoming 7th graders through graduating seniors. And also starting June 10th on that Wednesday, we're going to begin our online uh, summer Bible study called Wild Places, Life in Extraordinary Circumstances and Situations. And this gets all started Uh, We're really excited about this. Um, Some of us are not going to be able to take vacations and be able to move around like we once maybe thought we would. Uh, We have got something in store for you, and I think you're going to love it. So be watching for more details and how you can get signed up for this online summer Bible study that we're going to be doing together. There is also our children's ministry is putting together a complement to this summer studies that families can go through these experiences with their kids. So you want to be uh, looking for more information about that, but that all will get started Wednesday, June 10th. And one of the things that we want to do is continue to emphasize we want to love where we live. We want to be connecting with just the love and the life of Christ with our neighbors. And especially on this Memorial Day weekend, if you know someone who has had another in their family uh, pass away in the service of our country, would you just be intentional and reach out to them, let them know that you're thinking about them and that you care for them, and maybe even just even pray with them. But let's make a point to be looking to just connect with our neighbors, to encourage them, to make sure they're doing all right, to let them know that uh, we love them, and to look and see how God might use us in bringing care and the love of Christ to them. And then I think everyone should have received this, our version of moving forward, doing life together. That talks about the next steps here at Fellowship as we are moving to beginning face-to-face ministry, especially with all of our small groups. They're going to have the option of actually coming together off campus. All the details of all the next steps as we walk through this process, uh, moving to a place where we're able to resume all of our face-to-face ministries, those details are found in that Moving Forward Doing Life Together guide. You can get that on the website if you'd like to look that, uh, look it up. Also, if you have any questions, please just feel free to email us. We'd love to interact with you or answer any questions that you might have. We are continually just trusting God to lead us, guide us, protect us, as we move forward, and we cannot wait for the day that we'll be able to have face-to-face ministry and even worship services uh, where we're able to come together. We'll always be offering our online worship services, but we are already looking forward to the day that we'll be able to be able to come back and worship together. So friends, let us remember, God does some of his greatest work in times of adversity. So let us go from this worship service in the joy and the strength of Christ, looking to bring honor to him, to exalt his name, to walk and live as worshipers of him. And I want you to have a great week in God's grace.